This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. A crime novel usually has a perpetrator and a victim. All through her book release, Lucy Christopher has us wondering if we can trust the witnesses or the court system or even the narrator with exactly who the perpetrator and the victim really are. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. (laughs) Well, Kate Stone, travel agent, 27 years old, lives in London. But we first meet her in Perth on trial in the Supreme Court of Western Australia. We see everything through her eyes. But what more can you tell us about Kate Stone? Yes, she's quite a complicated protagonist and she has quite a dark and traumatic history. So when Kate was 16, she was called Gemma originally, and when she was 16, she was on a family holiday and uh, an older, attractive man bought her a coffee and unknown to her, he kidnapped her and took her to the middle of the Great Sandy Desert in Western Australia. And there he expected her to fall in love with him, but also with the desert itself. Mm. Well, it's 10 years later and you have Kate saying, a life ruined once is enough. So has she got over this incident? No, I think it's fair to say she is very much still dealing with the the aftermath of what happened to her in that formative age as a teenager. And uh, she's struggling with complicated and conflicting emotions of how she feels towards her kidnapper and, and also to the experience itself. This is a quote. God knows I've had a thousand sessions with Rhiannon, my therapist, but it never gets any better. Your fault. Whenever something goes wrong... It's easier to put your name on it. It's almost fun to blame you when the boiler breaks down or the tube's delayed or I get food poisoning or drunk. So she's she's been doing a bit of drinking, a bit of sexual experience over this last 10 years. Is it making her any happier? No, I don't think so. I think she's definitely indulging in in risk-taking behaviour and looking. She's trying to make herself happier and trying to sort of release herself from from the feelings that she had for for her kidnapper. So in the original um, kidnap, psychologists labelled her as having Stockholm Syndrome, which she disagreed with and thought at the time it was it was a real love that she felt for her kidnapper. So now she's she's wrestling with all sorts of emotions as to, well, what was it that she felt for him and how wrong was it and, and, and how did that impact her at this really vulnerable time of mm. being a teenager? She talks about having this ghost man in her head all the time and she's looking for love with all the wrong men But now she's met Nick. What's it about Nick that appeals to Kate? Well, she found Nick on a a dating app and there was something about the way he looked that reminded him of her original kidnapper. He had the same blonde hair and blue eyes and she was attracted to that and she starts to think that maybe she can get over her feelings for her kidnapper through, through being with this new guy, Nick. Well, in her job in London, she's answering emails in a travel agency and Rose, one of the um, people who get in contact with her, wants a different destination. So where does Kate suggest that she goes? Kate suggests that she goes to the desert, to well, to the outback and to Perth, where she had this very formative traumatic experience. And she does that 
for a few reasons, but one of them is really because she wants to go back herself. Mm, yeah. This love of the desert, the horizon rocks and a waterhole. Another quote. When we walked together in this land, when you showed me the beauty in it and the beauty in you and the beauty in me. Well, that's what Kate's thinking. But a letter changes everything in London for Kate. This letter leads her to ask Nick to do something most incredibly strange. I'm not sure how much you want to give want me to give away oh, here. I think you better tell her what, what was in the letter. Oh, in the letter, in the letter, it is the notification for the release of her kidnapper after ten years mm. in prison. Yes, so she asks Nick to perform some rather interesting sexual games. Anyway. Nick says he wants to help and accuses her of not loving, but she does want to love. And she actually wants to care for something called Cell. Yes. In London. What's Sal Cell? is the fox in the um, that lives in her yard at the back of her flat. And she is desperate to love. Like she she wants to love. She wants to feel love. Uh, and so she she looks after this stray fox um, that hides under the shed in her garden and she looks out for the for the other foxes in the neighborhood and she has plants that she looks after and she's sort of looking after the stray things on the edge of life really. Mm. Kate organizes to go away a holiday. Her parents are really pleased so why doesn't she tell them that she's going back to Australia? Well, she knows that her parents would be furious if they really knew she was going back to Australia. And they really are of the mind that she should be dealing with this trauma. It's been 10 years. She's had 10 years of therapy. They, they feel like they've done a lot to try and help her with this. And they think that she's getting better and that she's over the kidnapper, over Ty. So she knows they would be absolutely furious if the, if they knew she was really heading back to Australia. Yeah, because when all of this happened, she really got celebrity status, didn't she? Everybody wanted to interview her, take photos of her, and of course her parents were very protective, and there was a problem. Another quote, So much black and white, you and I, so many words now. We are novels and films, stories in the minds of thousands. So... She's back in Perth. What does she do? Well, of course, the very first thing she does is go to the prison where Ty is uh, a captor in the prison. And she waits and she watches and uh, she knows that in a few days he will be having his release day. So she's a stalker. Yeah, the tables have turned. And she also finds another fox. She does. An injured fox. So the story is diarised from December when the letter arrives to March when she is arrested. There is also the court proceedings from the Supreme Court of Western Australia, broken up into aspects from October. Lucy Christopher, this is very serious plotting. You really must have had to, well, did it flow or did it plot? That's a great question. And I, I always, I teach creative writing as well. And so I'm always asking my students, are you a plotter or a pantser? So do you fly by the seat of your pants? And I'm instinctively a pantser. I love to just pants through a novel. But I tried so hard to plot this one because mm. I knew it was important. And so I, I created this sort of diary folder with sections for each chapter with lots and lots of notes into it. And I got about halfway through using the folder and it was going very well. But then I wanted to pants. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> we did a bit of plodding and pantsing in the second half. Oh, right. Okay. Well, look, your narrator in this, Kate, does she fly by the seat of her pants? Let's just get that last bit about Kate. I've come to see that I'm good at imagining, good at telling stories. I like knowing all the possibilities of a tale before deciding on the version of the truth I'm going to tell. The truth she's going to tell. Well, as we said, we get everything from her point of view. We get put in when we have witnesses in court, and one of those witnesses is Ty's sister. What's the story that she tells about Kate? So she has a very different view about Kate, and she thinks Kate is is bad news. She thinks that Kate originally wasn't kidnapped by Ty, but decided to run away with him as a teenager. And then she thinks in this current present day that she's actually killed Ty. Mm. Release is the title, and also... Kate releases a fox into the Australian desert, a cunning animal not in its native home. Could this be what Kate is too, perpetrator or victim? Let's get a little bit more, and this is from page 197. The tears come again, and I slam my fists onto the floorboards. I've made a mess out of everything. But is there another option? If I kill you... Neither of us is a victim anymore. If I kill you, I go back down that long, flat road alone, return to Perth, then to London, as if nothing ever happened. I even get the last night of my hotel booking. If I kill you, I still tell Mum that I helped the turtles. If I kill you, I tell Mum I'm better from my time away, and who knows, maybe I will be. If I kill you, I will have the release, and you will not. You won't go back to prison. And neither will I. We will both be free. Release. Ooh. So, Kate, how did? Where did she come from? <laughs> she came from lots of places. I'm sure she came from me in some way or another. All my characters come from me in some way or another. But Kate, in particular, I have a, a growing up between Australia and the UK, and I always have the sort of feelings about um, the land here. Do I belong? Is it home? How do I sort of assimilate to the, to this land? And I love it. I absolutely love the the native landscape of Australia. And I think Kate's relationship with land is definitely me as a young person, being terrified of it and then coming to really furiously love it as well. And also that feeling of being taken somewhere you don't necessarily want to be at all and having to survive in that place. And that's that is a feeling on a much lesser scale, admittedly, but something that I felt as a young person going between living in Australia and also then the UK, that sort of wrenching out of environment and being put into a new one. Well, look, we mentioned the desert, but, you know, we it, it's so much part of this book. And it's it's odd that a woman from London or a writer from London would have that experience and that whole feel for such a something so different as the desert. Yeah, I absolutely adore the desert. You could probably tell it's in my book, I'm sure. And it started when I I grew up in Melbourne, uh, and my mum took me on a holiday, mum and daughter holiday, to to the middle of the Australian outback, so Uluru and you know touristy outback, mm. and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I became kind of obsessed with it. And I read loads of books about the desert and 
And even when I, I finished school and everyone was going on schoolies week to Queensland and to the beach, I went to the desert. I went on a camel trip. Oh, <laughs> so I think it's fair to say that I'm absolutely yeah, obsessed with it. It, it resonates very well yeah. in this book. A different court case, 10 years apart, and both involving kidnapping. But who was the perpetrator and who was the victim in release? Lucy Christopher's psychological drama. Oh, Lucy, great read. Thank you. And now it's David's turn. In Jared Thomas's novel, My Spare Heart, we have a coming-of-age story with some intriguing and interesting variations. So, Jared, welcome to 3CR. Yeah, thank, thanks so much, David, for having me. Your heroine is Phoebe, and much of her story and background is shared by other adolescent girls, but she does bring a unique perspective to your story. So what are the challenges Phoebe's facing? How is she differentiated from other girls her age? Well, with Phoebe, we meet 70-year-old Phoebe Ridgeway, and Phoebe's someone that's been really talented at basketball, so a keen sports person and quite academically gifted. But she, she comes to understand that her, her mum has a problem, problematic relationship with alcohol. And so we enter the story where the wheels are starting to fall off for her mum. So Phoebe has an Aboriginal father and a non-Aboriginal mother. And it's a non-Aboriginal mother that has a problematic relationship with alcohol. Phoebe's Aboriginal heritage perhaps gives, gives her a different view on the situation. She also faces a broken home, relocation, uh, coming to terms with boys. All of these are conventional tropes that we find. Yeah, so I think, look, I, I have three daughters. The eldest is 19, so the youngest is a, the middle uh, one is 11. So I've seen my kids go through these stages, and, of course, I was young once as well. So I'm kind of trying to write about the types of things that all young people go through, but the complication of having a parent that is uh, dealing with alcoholism. Phoebe ends up going to a Steiner school because she's relocated. The role of schools in this development and in coming to terms with one's heritage. Okay, so my, my daughters go to a Steiner school and where I'm a big fan of our school and our community. Um, I guess just like I was trying to portray the difference for kids and how isolating it can be just going into change. And sometimes that's what happens when you have a parent with a, an addiction issue. It separates families and the children within those families go through changes. So I could have had a, a transition from a public through to a private school. Um, in this case, I, I chose a starter school and I guess... For me, being a parent of children that have gone to that school, I guess as having feeling a safety to be able to discuss racism, which is so widespread across the nation. Um, and in fact, when you read the book, you'll see that Steiner really provided warmth and and a support for Phoebe to move through the challenges she's she's facing. It provides that foundation and support and structure, but even in the best of schools there's still misunderstanding. 
there's a, a misinterpretation. I think it was Matilda who says things that are inappropriate. So the racism is sort of inherent, not just in school, but in society in general. Society, yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to portray there is um, racism can be intergenerational because uh, we're, we're learning from our parents and those other people in community. And Matilda's probably naive to some of her racism and how hurtful it is. And so I wanted to show through Phoebe the effect that racist comments can have on the, an individual. And, and also to kind of show Matilda's kind of struggle being naive and how when she's challenged, she, she's quick to accept you know, the, her wrongs, really. And it's providing a forum where those misconceptions can be discussed, to be clarified, because, as you say, we inherit a lot of our racism and it's ignorance uh, more than anything else that needs to be brought into the open. The other interesting thing is, of course, Phoebe's mother is an alcoholic, but Phoebe's father doesn't want to sever the connection. And I found this interesting. I won't rip Phoebe away from her mother, not with my background, not thinking about all of my mob who were stolen from their parents. And I thought that is an intriguing way of looking at things. I hadn't seen it in that light. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, myself as an Aboriginal man, I do find that issue of, you know, removal of children today very, very challenging. When you look at the reasons why people, are, kids are, are removed from parents and um, how those issues are addressed. So it's something that I just wanted to raise, you know, which, which I think is probably the, the, the feeling of many Aboriginal people, um, that despair when kids are disconnected from, from their families. And uh, it's even looking at the situation in Ukraine at the moment, you know, like, Aboriginal people's response to that is very heartfelt because we had that history of that disconnection from family. Yes, I found Mark's reaction uh, more uh, sympathetic than one would have otherwise expected. So that was, that was fascinating. But you actually have Phoebe and her adolescent development almost paralleling her mother's development. Phoebe has a problem with boys. Trent, she's discovering boys. Mum has a problem with Simon, a new love interest. Phoebe is discovering alcohol and what it can do to one. Mum is still grappling with her alcohol addiction. And they're both seemingly learning simultaneously. Yeah, like I, I hadn't even, until you've said that, I hadn't uh, deliberately made that kind of juxtaposition. But I think, yeah, that's that's the thing. Like, uh, again, going through that stage of adolescence, like if you have an alcoholic parent and you're still going to be kind of intrigued by alcohol, probably more so. For Phoebe, it's a way, how does she understand what her mum's going through? So she wants to try drinking. It's partly because of the peer pressure of friends. But um trying to understand what her mum is actually dealing with. But it's all the parents are grappling with uh, these sorts of pressures in society. You've got it set in a wine region, so there's a lot of alcohol being consumed. Some uh, are consuming it at a very young age. Some are still learning. Even the adults are still learning how to come to terms with alcohol. 
Yeah, well, that's, yeah. So I deliberately wanted to set it in a wine region because this book isn't kind of really explaining, it doesn't set out to explain alcoholism. What it sets out to kind of show is what people go through if, if they're in a relationship with an addict. And within a wine region where I live, like, of course, there's people that have healthy relationships with drinking. They, they can drink um, responsibly. And then there's others for a whole set of unexplainable reasons that it's a problem. And I wanted to show that the, the problem within Australian society and, and internationally is just so prolific. So it's about kind of um, taking the stigma away from the issue. You've also highlighted the breadth of the problem with alcohol. It's not just the alcoholic individual. It permeates the entire family. And you've got counselling sessions where our partners, children are talking about the impact alcohol has had on their lives, even though some of these individuals don't drink but have an alcoholic uh, parent or partner or something like that. Yeah, no, that's right. As part of my research, I went to similar meetings for about 18 months. So I do not uh, kind of draw on anyone's experience, particularly, but through this book, I kind of distill the essence of experience. So th this is the interesting thing. We often look at the addict and we feel sorry for the addict, but it's actually the people around the addict that are suffering. Again, for me, that was really important because as an adult, if I had a friend or relative that was dealing with an addiction and it was affecting me, I would be able to go and see a psychologist. Even some adults find that hard to do. But if you're, a, if you're an adolescent in that situation, obviously they're not going to go nowhere to begin. And uh, so this book, in a way, is it's showing young people who may be in that situation a way to navigate it. Phoebe actually finds support in a most unique way, walking country. Watma made all of the Flinders Ranges, the mountains, the hills, the creeks, the waterholes and the plains. Watma in the water in the sky, the water in creeks, waterholes and the ocean and beneath the ground, the aquifers. After Watma had created everything in the Whitma, the history time or time that the earth was created, he came through this creek and started turning into a whale here. The significance of that foundation for Phoebe. Well, as a Nukuna person, I live in the city today. I work and live in the city, but my home is the Southern Flinders Ranges. And most Nukuna people, and including my children, if we get unwell, physically sick, or we feel off, for us, going back home is a way to reconnect. We know that that particular landscape has nurtured our family for tens of thousands of years. So with that type of knowledge and going home and understanding country, it is a way to reconnect and uh, sometimes just to, just to move through things. So I wanted to kind of show, I guess, yeah, what, what is when we talk about connection to countries, Aboriginal people, what does that really mean? What does it look like? Do you think there's enough literature out there for adolescents with an Indigenous background? No, not yet. So we're, we're starting. I mean, like... Um, there are a few Aboriginal people working, writing young adult fiction. Um, there's certainly a lot more children's books, but there's so much more space because as Aboriginal people, all of our experiences are very diverse. They're very different. And there's a huge difference between Torres Strait Islander experience and Aboriginal experience and 
South Australian Aboriginal experience compared to Queensland, etc. So non-Aboriginal people are going to keep writing about their experiences and culture and no one ever asks, are there enough non-Aboriginal narratives? So yeah, there's there's so much scope for people to keep, to, to, people need to keep writing these stories. And I think there is a growing awareness, I'm hoping there is a growing awareness that will allow for that to occur and for these books to come into the library of what is available. So as I said at the beginning, it's an adolescent story that is so familiar and yet there is a unique perspective and dimension that has been added to it. So the novel is My Spare Heart. The author is Jared Thomas, and it is an Alan and Unwin release. So, Jared, thank you very much for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you so much, David. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. Hello, I'm John Fain. I used to work at the ABC when I... <clears throat> had a microphone, but here I am in front of a microphone at 3CR and what an absolute pleasure it is to be back here for the first time in about 35 years. I wish you all the very best for your Radiothon. I hope you raise buckets and buckets of money because 3CR is a really important part of the media landscape in this city, this state and this country.